It's time to wake up and step up. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathurong people. Me personally, I'm in Wunnable in Gunditjmara country, where on the weekend there was an incredible community gathering of support for Gunditjmara sea country against seismic testing. We'd like to acknowledge that we're on stolen land, land that was never ceded. We have so much to learn from the first peoples of Australia who nurtured their land and their communities for millennia before it was stolen. And in that ancient wisdom, we have so much to learn as we navigate the climate crisis. What we're seeing in Australia is state capture by the fossil fuel companies and a negligent failure to act by both sides of politics. We know enough. We know too much now to continue down this path. We, we have Labor ministers, Labor senators, just try and tell us about the, the projects that they are uh, approving when it comes to renewables. And at the same time, they're ramping up our fossil fuel uh, exports. We know how urgent this is. It is now negligence. We are throwing our future under the bus for short-term profits. During my last year in high school, 2005, now Prime Minister Anthony Albanese introduced his own private member's bill to insert a climate trigger into our environmental laws. 2005, here we are in 2023 and we've got a Labor government that has the numbers to do that today. They won't do it. You have to ask yourself, why? Why are we seeing this inaction from Labor? We are disrespecting our climate scientists. We have scientists like Dr. Joel Gerges who have put their life into raising the alarm in telling us how bad it is. She was the lead scientist on the, on the last sixth IPCC uh, report. The last one, the last warning before the window of 1.5 to 2 degrees closes and yet we're seeing inaction from Labor. We must do Thank better. You. Said Senator David Pocock when he spoke in Parliament. Brilliantly clear and we couldn't have said it better here in the Sustainable Hour. So quickly over to our global outlook, Colin Market OAM. What have you discovered out there in the week that went? Yeah, thank you, Mick. Um, the world is in turmoil at the moment with war, but there's still plenty of climate issues uh, hitting the news around the world. Our roundup begins this week in Los Angeles, where an old friend of this program, Bill McKibben, published an article which poses a conundrum that potentially uncovers the world's biggest greenwashing scam. It begins with the indisputable good news that so far this century, solar, wind, batteries and other climate-friendly energy sources have been dropping in costs as they've been gaining in an ever-growing market share. Now, this has considerably reduced the demand for fossil fuels. But then comes the huge contradiction at the heart of the climate fight. For as the Paris Agreement architect Christina Figueres told the recent Climate Changes Everything conference, the climate-friendly technologies are accelerating, 
But so, at the same time, are the fossil fuel industries. They're expanding and therefore keeping the greenhouse gas emissions climbing. The McKibben article points out that reducing the demand for fossil fuels is not enough. It's only by reducing the supply of fossil fuels that the true measure of successful climate policy, because global temperatures will keep rising until the world stops burning those fossil fuels. And the fossil fuel industry has no intention of letting that happen. ExxonMobil just announced a $60 billion purchase of a rival oil and gas producer, which demonstrates that it has plans to sell vast amounts of fossil fuels for decades to come. The United Arab Emirates is expanding its production capacity by 7.5 billion barrels of oil equivalent. Even as Sultan Al-Jabbar, who heads the UAE's state-owned oil company while also presiding over the next COP28 summit, insists that his company has a net-zero future. Bill McKibben says that this is the contradiction that the world's media should be reporting. It needs to spotlight and explain to audiences, he said, that we have got to continually point out that the real climate villains are the fossil fuel industry. And governments, banks, insurance companies around the world need to stop supporting this industry and cancel any plans that they have to expand their operations. His article singled out Louisiana, where oil and gas companies want to construct an array of pipelines and terminals to export liquid natural gas. The climate implications are enormous, he says, partly because LNG is as carbon intensive as coal. And the proposed project is only one of scores that are lined up for, for the EPA in America to approve. We have in the past highlighted many new projects that are planned for Australia. Clearly, it's a situation that can't continue with the rollout of clean technology actually being held up by big banks and governments who are supporting the old dirty industries. Now to the UN in New York, where the global study by the International Energy Agency, the IEA, has found that the world must add or replace 80 million kilometres of electricity grids by 2040. That's equal to all of the grids that are globally uh, available today. And this is to meet national climate targets and support energy. And the IEA's new report, um, which is called Electricity Grids and Secure Energy Transitions, offers a first-of-its-kind stock of grids wide. Find signs of countries that are not keeping pace with the rapid growth of key clean energy technologies, such as wind, electric, and heat pumps. Without greater policy attention and investment shortfalls in the reach and quality of grid infrastructure, uh, this could put the goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius out of reach and undermine energy security, the report warns. Efforts to tackle climate change and ensure reliable supplies of electricity could put at risk unless governments, policymakers and companies quickly take action to improve and expand the world's electricity grids, which are set to rise 
as electricity's role in energy systems increase at the expense of fossil fuels, the report warns. It's pretty obvious. We're increasing the amount of electricity as we're cutting out gas. It makes sense that uh, we, we're going to need stronger and better grids. But in fact, the fossil fuel companies are busy advising governments to go slow on grid rollouts. They're also advising governments to crack down on climate protesters, which leads us to London, where the leading climate activist Greta Thunberg was arrested and charged with a public order offence last week. She was protesting outside an oil and gas conference at the luxury Intercontinental Hotel in Park Lane. Greta, who is now 20, was one of 26 protesters who were charged over the fossil-free London demonstration. The Metropolitan Police said that they were all charged with Section 14 of the Public Order Act by refusing to move off the road when ordered. The UK is one of a raft of countries that's cracking down on climate crisis protest action under pressure from the fossil fuel lobbyists, and that includes Australia. Matilda Lane Rose, who has been called Australia's answer to Greta Thunberg, faces a charge of conspiracy to commit an indictable offence after a protest at Woodside CEO's Meg O'Neill's Perth home. That was last month. While her fellow activist, Joanna Partica, who is also on trial for protest against Woodside, had her home raided by counter-terrorism police. Counter-terrorism, it's now called. But back in Vatican City, we've got good news because Pope Francis published a groundbreaking document that makes a theological case for climate action. It's called Laudate Diem, or Praise God, and Pope Francis said the world is nearing a breaking point. He condemns climate denial and calls for urgent climate action. The Roman Catholic Church that he leads is the largest Christian denomination has over a billion followers around the world, and the edicts that they give out are basically instructions to all of those followers. The new edict focuses on the realities of climate change, the realism of climate change, and it takes a moral, ecological, and social problem. He makes it the responsibility of all people to take action in order to address the climate change emergency. And finally, our favourite sports team, the Forest Green Rovers, um, the world's only green sports team, uh, were due to play Mansfield Town at the weekend, but the match was postponed because the pitch was waterlogged following 30 hours of torrential rain in the Midlands of England. The UK media has named the downpour Storm Babbitt, and it's a very clear reminder that the world's greenest football team uh, needs to take the stance that it does. And that little slice of irony ends my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Paul Sinclair. Paul is the lead campaigner at the Australian Conservation Foundation or the ACF. We've had Paul on before, so um, we thought we'd We'd get him back on for an update. Thanks for coming in, Paul. What's up front at the moment for ACF? Uh, thanks, Tony, for, for getting me back on the show. I really appreciate it. And, uh, Colin, that was a fantastic roundup. 
a bit of a mix of hope and despair <laughs> in there. Um, yeah, it's it's um, it's been a pretty big year, really. Um, and looking ahead, we think over the coming weeks and months that uh, Australia is looking down the barrel of some really significant impacts from climate change in terms of bushfire and heat waves. And I think that any folks that care deeply about taking action to stop and reverse the impacts of climate change and its impact on people and nature have to be ready to be up and about over the next couple of months to draw very strong links between the burning of fossil fuels and the impact that it's having on the people that we love and the places that we love. And I, I think it's a fair cop to say, you know, that probably over the last eight years that, you know, organisations like mine and others, we're, we're science-based organisations, we seek to have a strong, credible voice in the public and we try and draw straight straight lines between what the science is saying and, and what's happening in the world and what needs to happen. And I think the line is very clear that companies like Woodside and Santos, that between them have two projects that are looking at producing almost 3 billion tonnes of new pollution into the atmosphere, we need to say that when those fires occur, when those heat waves occur, that there is a direct line of responsibility back. Decisions to burn coal and gas are decisions to harm people and nature. And I think um, I'm personally very worried about the next um, few weeks. And for my own mental health, I work on a principle that I'm either you can be in a hole or out of a hole. And I work really hard to be out of the hole. And it, action is one of the ways to keep out of the hole. And I think that we need to um, work really hard over the over coming weeks when we see catastrophes occurring to draw them very, sheet them very strongly back to the companies that are responsible. And the fact that our Australian parliament needs to act much more strongly to control those companies and to phase out the export of coal and gas in particular. And the final thing that we've got on the go over the next few weeks is this our national environmental laws are busted and mistrusted um, they've failed to do the one job that they're meant to do which is protect nature so they've allowed the approval of hundreds of coal mines and and gas fields they've um, allowed the clearing of seven million hectares of threatened species habitat and we have a once in a generation opportunity to reform those laws and the government has is drafting legislation now to create a new national nature laws, and we'll be trying to mobilise and activate our supporters over coming weeks and months to build pressure on the Albanese government to make sure that we don't miss this once-in-a-generation opportunity to get nature laws that do the one job that they need to do, which is protect nature. Paul, what is it with the Australian people, and what's your impression of of you know the 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 big majority out there? Why I'm asking is because I, I'm I'm confused when I see different surveys and studies and so on. Often we hear that 80% of the Australians want more action on climate change, and then we have this study that just came out last week from Griffith University, which basically says that the Australians are not listening to climate science. They're not. There's a disconnect between Australians and scientists. That's the headline. Yeah. What's your impression of the 
overall impression of the Australian people. Where are they at? Do they take it seriously? Do they understand what kind of situation we're in? It's a big question. Um, and I think um, I'm really proud to be an Australian. And I'm, you know, our country's history is made up of shocking injustice um, and amazing achievement. And you can hold both those things at the same time, right? So the people you, when you ask the question about what is it with the Australian people, the Australian people are people I play cricket with on the weekend. They're people that I'll see in the street. So they're just our, they're our friends and family that they're that annoying uncle at Christmas who gives you the shits, whatever. Personally, I find it really hard to hold all the information about what's happening to the world in my head. And I'm a paid activist, a paid rat bag. And for me, I find it hard. For people who are, you know, working, doing their job, getting home, worried about what their kids are doing, trying to pay the mortgage, do all that stuff. I don't think you can expect Australians to be, know all the science or to connect what the science says to the way that they live their life. People need solutions that are that are easy to implement, that make them feel good, that they're making a contribution and can scale up so that it may appear small, but the aggregate or the cumulative effect of individual action creates a system-wide change. That's the sweet spot we're trying to do. I think it's a natural reaction for people to withdraw from things that are overwhelmingly painful and they don't feel that they can impact on the outcome. And I think the challenge for myself and anyone who's listening to this program is how do we keep a sense of hope and optimism and focus on the solutions while not turning away from what we actually are actually are facing right before us. And that's that tension is we can't, if we just focus on describing everything that's screwed up in the world, it's hard to find that energy and act about that we can actually do something about it. And it's social movements always have that tension. I'm people involved in anti-racism or anything. It's, they're massive issues and we've got to find ways, pathways that people can say, alone I'm a bit a bit pathetic, but when I join with others, I can create change that can, can address the systemic destruction of the planet or the other injustices that we have. So I'm hopeful that Australians are going to be able to, if we can, as activists, as people who care about the future of our country and the world, can keep trying to communicate and listen to what people's concerns are, shape our message, shape the sort of action that people can take that are meaningful for them and that they can see real progress occurring. That's a challenge for us. And I don't think this is one simple answer. It's a continual process of struggle and failure and success and reimagining and away we go. Yeah. Paul, you, um, you mentioned that the next trouble that you see is putting pressure on the Albanese government to actually do what the EPA's uh, edict says, uh, protect the environment. You would be aware more than most that the fossil fuel industry has got scores of lobbyists in Canberra. What hope has your one voice got uh, when it's talking to the federal government against all of their advisors who are mostly drawn from the fossil fuel industry? That's my first question. And the second one is, has anybody done any research to find out if any town or city has been affected by floods and fires in Australia, have now got a much stronger climate response than they had before? 
or whether they go back to square one of just uh, allowing it to go on in the background, which is, seems to be the Australian um, uh, default position. Well, so, Colin, your first question, the National Nature Laws has a very sexy title of the Environment, Biodiversity and Conservation Act. Um, and one of the good things is that the government has committed to establishing our first national environment protection agency. Oh, my God, like, that's only taken us how many decades, but it's a great thing. Um, and the point about we're only one voice, I would agree with you if we were only one voice. With ACF has over 500,000 supporters. So when we, when I speak, I have five, the voices of 500,000 people behind me. When one of our community leaders speak, they do the same. So there are lots of people out there pushing in on this issue. So it's not just one voice. There's a bunch of other um, conservation organisations from BirdLife to WWF to a lot of the conservation councils out there. So we're not alone on this. And there's, the polling says also that most Australians want to see nature protected by its national environment law. The question about lobbyists is a, is a really good one. So... Um, there is no doubt that dark money, the money that political parties get, that no one knows where it comes from. A lot of that, I'm sure, will be coming from coal and gas companies who are trying to pollute not just our atmosphere, but our parliaments by buying influence. It's easy to get um, feel despair about that because of the power of corporations in our democracy. But fantastic organisations like the Australian Democracy Network are developing proposals right now and seeking to, to influence new electoral reform that will seek to try and limit the influence of corporate money on our parliament. So there are people pushing into that. Um, we've got to win that debate. At the moment, we're concerned that maybe the, the Australian government will partner with the coalition to pull together some electoral reforms that that don't do what's required where we hope that we can convince the parliament that hearing all voices as equally as possible is is the way to go and colin it comes back to you know a sort of like port and cigar conversation about the principles that we're working here is can democracy solve the climate crisis can democracy solve the extinction crisis that's ultimately what your question is getting back can we deal with the problems that our democracy has, and I, I come back to the point that it has to, because in my view, the alternative, whether it's from the left or the right, are more authoritarian responses. Now, I think there is a time, perhaps not far away, when those responses are going to be required, if democracy fails. But I want to put my money on democracy and its ability to solve these problems. Because otherwise, I think you end up there's a bunch of authoritarian responses that I don't think is there's a bunch of other downsides of that. But the challenge for you and I and anyone who gives a shit about our democracy is we have to make it work to solve the problem. And that does mean getting coal and gas money out of our parliament. This is an open letter from you and me together Tomorrow's in our hands now Find a 
words that matter, say them out loud, I make it better somehow. Mm. Looking down from up on the moon is a tiny blue marble. Recently, there's been a lot of talk around the Atlas Network and their, what they've done to you to connect fossil fuel psychopaths all over the world, like globally. It's wondering, are the, are the ACF, and, and there's a move generally within, within uh, climate movement to connect internationally. Is the ACF, is that on the ACF's radar at all? Yeah, we, we do work with other NGOs globally, but I, I think, Tony, what you're getting at there is is around the the growing influence of coordinated and more effective disinformation campaigns to shape public opinion, and we are deeply concerned uh, about that. I think there's some analysis around the referendum that is concerning about how disinformation is working and I, I think there is clear evidence that some organisations that are not supportive of strong climate action are becoming much more effective at using digital communications at shaping public perception and for that public perception to then getting picked up by politicians who then say stuff and do stuff then reinforces public perception. So there's some questions there about how do individuals and organisations who are seeking to create change that advances human and natural welfare effectively combat disinformation? And I see at least two different paths. One of them is you spend your life playing your opponent's game, that you spend different ways of trying to neutralise your opponent and, and you obsess about what they're doing or you're aware of what your opponents do and you do seek to make their message less appealing but that you focus on hope truth love and solutions right and you push mighty hard into that space and i think i think that organizations like acf and other organizations concerned with trying to have genuine debate 
in our democracy to get good decisions are going to have to really grapple grapple with this. I don't have the answers, and I'd love to hear your views and Kirsten's views on how we might go about this. Kirsten, I, I noticed that you would like to respond to what to Paul's uh, suggestion there. So we'll uh, maybe introduce yourself, and then uh, you're our next guest. So we'll, we'll roll on from there. So Kristen Vaughan, I'm um, a partner at Varescent Ventures. We're a climate tech venture firm. So um, coming at it from a, a very different angle, I think, to Paul. Um, and, and, you know, certainly I've, I've certainly been, um, you know, following the Nate and, you know, a member of the, um, Nature Conservation Foundation for a long time. And I'm thinking, I'm hoping I got the wording right, but I've, I've got your emails. Um, and, and really kind of passionately supporting the work you do. And I guess it's um, a little bit different. I, I, I like the way you said you're either in the hole or you're out of the hole because I certainly felt very similarly, um, you know, really moved into working, um, focusing 100% on climate about six years ago, really looking at, okay, how can I, I was trying to do things in my own personal life and then going, well, that's not enough. How do I actually start contributing in a really meaningful, positive way. And I had been in the, um, working in investments for a long time. So I thought, well, how do I bring those two things together and mobilise capital in a way to help address some of these? So very much kind of very relate, very much relate to, to what you were saying there, Paul, um, you know, in terms of, of and, and I find I, I find it hard to step back and look at the big picture a lot of the time too, because I think it's all too much. I'm just going to put my head down and keep trying to make a difference in the area that I that I work in. Um, and now after all of that, I can't even remember what the question was. Um, but it was, I think it was about combating disinformation. Yeah. What, what are the people like? I'd be interested if you, do you think disinformation is an issue that is growing and does it help and hinder your work? Yeah. No, look, I think it's, um, I, you know, I've, um, so where we, we invest in, you know, anything from, we invest in, um, focused on companies that decarbonise. So either, you know, predominantly that reduce emissions. So we look at, we do a whole lot of investment into energy tech, um, or into agriculture or into, into transportation, heavy industries, all about how can we reinvent those industries in a low carbon way? And then also how do we build resilience into, you know, climate resilience into industries? Um, and so I think on the whole, over the time that I've been investing in that space, the demand has grown significantly. So I think that's a really great thing. I think that, you know, I, so I'm kind of optimistic on the one hand that we see, like when I started investing it six years ago, it was hard to convince people that this was a real industry, that this was, you know, a proper, you should invest in it. These technologies are needed. Today, you know, there's, huge pull from every single part of the economy that we work in that wants these solutions. So I think that's on the one hand incredibly optimistic um, and so much more needs to be done, but I think at least seeing that really strong demand from industry um, for solutions and pretty much around the world. Um, but but on the other hand, I think yes, I certainly think that um, you know, I guess with the, you know, with the the referendum, um, uh, and other big issues that are, um, you know, they're being debated. I certainly think that um, disinformation is a huge challenge, um, and I think it is, uh, you know, I, th I think it is incredibly challenging to address. Um, and I suspect, I, I mean, one thing I think when I was hearing you talk through um, your views there, Paul, you know, one thing I guess that one of the reasons I really wanted to work in the space was because I thought the narrative in Australia for so long was all about what we had to give up. 
and everything, you know, we have to shut down these industries, we have to stop doing this, stop doing that, whereas actually Australia is incredibly well positioned to become a leader on renewable technologies, everything that comes off that, you know, on on um, developing, you know, it, it's all about building building industries in Australia that are part of the new economy rather than telling everybody everything they have to give up. So I think there is, uh, you know, I think I, I personal opinion is that I think we need to continue to really build hope and and a future that people can focus on that, you know, a just transition that brings everyone along. Um, but on the other hand, I, I, it's just my opinion, but I suspect we might need to employ some of the tactics um, as well that the other that the kind of disinformation campaign is using, um, because I think you know it, there's so much at stake here. I don't know, you know, I, I'm not sure whether, yeah, I'm just it's a personal question. I'm not sure whether we can we can win as fast as we need to. I think the primary aim needs to be very much about about addressing. The issues creating hope and a future, but but how do we do a little bit of both at the same time? Mm. There's this talk about state capture, but there's also a thing I would call Microsoft capture. I have a completely standard computer, and I open up the standard browser that comes with the Microsoft package, and every time they have this news on the front, every time I open there's something from Sky News as the first picture that comes in my face. And it's something about that the transmission lines, you know, the, all these new electric poles that they have to put up for, for the wind turbines. There's a huge campaign against that. And this is from Microsoft. Yeah, I guess, you know, different media interests. I, 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 again, personally, outside of work, I try and make sure I follow all of those things because it's so easy to become so siloed, isn't it? And you and you get, you know, on the other hand, through social media and the like, you just keep getting fed back to you what you already believe. And it's really important to understand what other people are consuming um, and understanding from media. But, um, yeah, I think it is, and, and, yeah, it chips away at everyone. I think it's I think it's kind of bringing it back to conversations as well. We need to be having those conversations around why do you think something really kind of really respectful, um, honest conversations to, um, you know, to change minds. Mm. And speaking about changing minds and maybe starting somewhere new and starting a different conversation, we came across a flag. A Dutch guy has been designing a flag a couple of years ago, and we have our 10-year anniversary, and I was thinking about creating a flag, uh, you know, to celebrate uh, something positive. And, and the Sustainable Hours logo is a, is a blue planet with a green background, so I made a, a flag that looked like that. Then I Googled it and I found out, oh, there's somebody in Holland who has gone further, much further than I could ever have gone and actually got a flag out there and, and hundreds of flags, actually. So we just did an interview and we've put out a full hour interview with him this week in our podcast uh, that you can hear. But I thought you should just hear a short excerpt of what he's saying. And then if you're keen, you can uh, go to our uh, homepage climatesafety.info and you can hear the entire hour, the interview with him, but you can also uh, learn more about the flag and how you can get a flag for your own house or garden or for next time you're going to rally or whatever you want to use the flag for because a flag is a very different kind of conversation opener than anything else, I think. I have seen the grail. Nobody out here. I have seen it! I have seen it! 
But there is one small problem. It's a simple. It's a very simple idea. It's one rectangle. It's one one circle. That's it. Um, but there's so much to it now, and it leads to all kinds of places, all kinds of discussions, giving workshops, presentations, having a conversation, much like this one. Um, it's a big adventure for me. I think it it makes sense for me to be doing this to uh, hopefully add something, leave something behind for my kids as well. Uh, it's not about us, it's about the next generation. Thijs Bonekamp is 45. He's a graphic designer from Harlem in the Netherlands, where he lives together with his partner Hilde and their two children, aged 15 and 11. Thijs grew up with a lot of nature around him, but since art school and later on when he moved his design studio to Amsterdam, he's mostly been surrounded by city life. Today he lives in Amsterdam where he works together with four colleagues at a studio for visual communication called Ape to Zebra. I was once asked by somebody from the nature department of the Dutch ministry to help out with some storytelling around biodiversity and that got me thinking, do we really need more stories? Do we need more angles? Do we need more messages on this Uh, huge problem that we have? The, the the climate crisis and I was wondering if if that would really help a lot if people uh, are waiting for more messaging around this it's it's so complex and and so so vast it might be better to make it more simple to uh, instead of uh, creating a new campaign create some sort of symbol that could that could help people to uh, connect with, to recognize themselves in, and to tie all these stories together. And um, as a graphic designer, I'm quite used to zooming in and out on our clients, on their business, on their cause, on uh, on their uh, problem that they have. And I was looking at this uh, question from the ministry, and I, I, thought, I thought, why don't we zoom out on this? And And Why don't we zoom out all the way, uh, just like uh, astronauts? And and Carl Sagan uh, had made this uh, incredible video when he was six billion kilometers away from the Earth, I think. He looked back at the Earth and seeing how tiny and fragile it really is, this tiny blue dot. It's a a great video. You can uh, find it on YouTube very easily. A pale blue dot, it's called. So I ordered four flags and I've been already experiencing in real life what he's talking about there when friends come by and see the flags conversations start right away right there and i have this feeling that we have an opportunity maybe to start somewhere fresh if we begin to introduce a flag that doesn't have a political stance it doesn't say anything about targets or percentages of uh, drawdown of uh, CO2 or anything. It just says, basically, I'm one of these people who believe we need to take better care of planet Earth and all life on it. And that's where we start. What do you think, Paul? Could this idea have some merit for the ACF? I, I really like the point you're making about starting a conversation and having a flag that or an image that starts a, a conversation like ultimately that is where hope lies because the, what we're all talking about here where we need to get to is is persuasion right i think 
you know, we started the conversation about why don't more Australians take the action or put pressure on to drive climate change. That's, that's a persuasive concern. To believe in the future, you have to believe that you can have a conversation with another human being and that you can learn something from them and they can be persuaded by you. Otherwise, we go and get a gun, right? Persuasion is absolutely fundamental. And what I like about the flag is persuasion relies on, I, I think it's where you've got some, you hold, we all hold contradictory views. And when you have a conversation and someone shows a mirror to, oh, I, this is sort of a little bit incoherent with this other value I hold, you shift. And I think a flag is something that's an idea that could start a conversation that allows people to reflect on the values they have and reflect on where they line up and where they don't. And that actually starts a conversation about how we actually take the action we need to, to help save our country and our planet. Kristen, yeah. I was just going to ask you a question, actually, Paul. Do you think people have lost the ability to have those conversations? I mean, in your kind of work, do you see... I mean, because I guess a lot's been written about and you hear a lot about people being more siloed and I think, you know, getting living almost in echo chambers with social media and the internet. What, what are your thoughts there? I think there's a whole lot of forces in the world, including a lot of the social media that is about pushing us into polarised positions where mm. that dehumanise the other part of the mm. argument. Yeah. Um, it's like, you know... It's the idea of calling in rather than calling out. And mm. I think it's any anyone, we all know that face-to-face -face communication is the most powerful form of communication. And increasingly, if, you, if you're able to sit and talk with someone and understand their, listen to their story, you, you create the foundation of trust and the idea that you can have a conversation about what, where you agree and disagree. The challenge I find in our organisation, and we still haven't cracked it, is doing that at scale, right? So you can do it. It's it's hard, long-term work. But I ultimately, I think it's the thing that that is um, gives us the greatest hope. There's a fantastic book called um, The Persuaders, which has come out in the uh, – it's by U.S., author and he's, he just goes through and he talks to a whole bunch of activists about their views on persuasion and he has some fantastic examples that he's basically saying to activists calm the farm don't get too pure you need to be able to listen and you need to basically accept no one's going to be exactly where you want them to be right now everyone's in a transition to the place where we need to go so have these conversations he's got a bunch of things from me too to climate activism it's a really invigorating hopeful book yeah, great i'll definitely have a look at that i mean i think as a mother of an eight-year-old and a ten-year-old i'd love to see that be in the schools more i think learning you know such an essential skill as having those really re you know respectful disagreements and conversations about where everyone sits yes mm -hmm. in kirsten you have them every day when the Kids are saying, hey, I want this, I want yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes more respectful than others. <laughs> right, I'm getting back to the flag. I'm uh, a dreadful old cynic, I know this, Mick, but um, I believe that the flag, you can't avoid it being political because we are in Australia and Australia has long had 
a flag debate about whether to keep the Union Jack in our flag. And if you put that flag out as a, yet another alternative, alongside, if you like, the uh, Aboriginal flag, which we've had since the 1970s, it's not dissimilar, just different colours. Um, I fear for the impact. I, I fear it's too easy for people to point to it and say, hey, it's just going to be your your alternative to the Australian flag because I fought and died under the Australian flag. You know, it's, it, flags are um, the Patriots' last stand, if you like. It's a good point, Colin, and maybe that's where my flag journey began. I was recently in Denmark at the main railway station in Copenhagen, and that is a very, very big hall. I was impressed with the line of flags, and these flags only come up, for instance, when it's the Queen's birthday or something like that. But the line of flags, every second flag was a Ukrainian flag, and then there was a Danish flag, a Ukraine and Danish. And this was an incredibly powerful statement. You see all these people in the railway station, and they all see the flags. And they all see that here's a community, here's a council, here's a state that has taken a stand. We are with Ukraine. On this one, we are with the Ukraine and we are against Russia. And they spoke without any words and it was very peaceful. And that's where, in my mind, I put an Earth flag instead of the Ukraine flag and, and imagined what would it look like if a country put every second flag, you know, in, in this long line of flags, an earth flag and then the national flag, an earth flag and then the national flag. And in Australia's case, yes, then there would be more flags. There would be the Aboriginal flag, obviously. And maybe there would be the rainbow flag. We do have flags and they have, they have powerful messages, all of them. Yes, the rainbow flag, you must be aware, is another controversy that had the Surf Coast Council tearing itself apart about whether to put it up on the council buildings. Flags are very provocative things. They always have been. They have a history of, of such. Then we have the conversation, don't we? Mm. I believe this flag can do a lot of good. And I think the, the conversations that will follow. Uh, but, but let's give it a try, should we? Hey, we're launching this flag on Saturday, officially. And uh, have a listen to the, the hour, the climate revolution. We call this series of podcasts. This is episode number six. Give it an ear and see what you think. Is it, and just create a word picture, it, it, that's, it's, it's green with the, the blue, just the blue dot. Yeah, it's like, you know, the Japanese flag. Most people remember the Japanese flag. It's white with this red circle in the middle. So just replace these two colors, white and red. So it's very bright green where the Japanese is white. And then it's this blue dot in the middle where the Japanese has a red dot in the middle. It's simple. And that, I think, is the strength of this flag. Colin, is that what you're getting at? Is that if you've got a flag for something, it's against something else implicitly? It just brings out the bigots. Um, whether that's a good or a bad thing, at least it puts up an argument. But a lot of people just simply walk away once somebody starts saying... The, that's not the flag I died under or, or you know, my my family fought under this one and that sort of thing. And you, mm. you it's unnecessary provocation. Yeah. yeah. So this is the page where we introduce the flag. This is the man behind it. Mm -hmm. And when you go down, you see some different uh, examples of it. The inspiration he got was, you see that pale blue 
dot. This is uh, Carl Sagan. He wrote a whole book and uh, there's a video about this little tiny white dot there. It's a picture taken by Voyager 1 in 1990 when that spaceship was six billion kilometers away and the dot there, the Earth, just looked so insignificant. So he, he, he sort of made a, a whole poem, you could say, around that. And that's why the flag is called the Blue Dot Flag. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The Earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. So uh, here's here's the picture from uh, the railway station where I have changed the Ukraine flag into what it would look like if it was a, a global blue dot flag instead. The picture on the left is real. The picture on the right is my Photoshop work. Yeah, I guess it's an interesting idea. I guess I'd, I I come back to kind of where I've decided, and obviously it's you know full my biases because this is how I've decided to have an impact. I think I think I mean I feel like there's no one way to do these things, is there? And we need every single tool that we have to move as fast as we need to. And I do think I kind of come back to this paint showing people the opportunity and what is actually happening um, to address, I think, I think is just that kind of motivational force, I think. And, and then you are playing into, I mean, I hear stories of people, you know, taking, and I'm sure we all have, taking their money out of fossil fuels and then they've gone really well. The fossil fuel stocks have actually gone pretty well in the last 12, 18 mm -hmm. months and people then feeling disappointed that they've completely missed out on that, right? There is that self-interest that comes through. So how do we play into that and appeal to that self-interest? Well, actually, here are some other areas that you can invest into and you can do. So I think it's kind of, under, you know, thinking about how, how people's behaviour is driven, um, general positive focusing on opportunity, but also, you know, what's in it for me and how do I benefit and how do I be part of this new economy? Yeah, I'd be in interested to hear your views on, do you think we're approaching or have hit a tipping point in the financing of the renewable energy transition and that's one part and the other part is what impact do you think that australia's treasurer jim chalmers is you know developing some climate disclosure laws currently that will lift the bar on what corporations have to disclose about their climate performance yeah what impact might that have yeah, no, great question. So, I mean, personally, so I think with the first question, I don't think we have. I think there's a lot of interest and I think there's a lot of movement that way, but there are some really, and it's not one, you know, it's every single industry that needs to transition. And obviously the energy sector is a massive part of it, but we know there are physical challenges there as to how that funding gets deployed and, 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 um, you know, thinking through what the return is on that. And I, so I think there's, I mean, the fact that the CFC has been given another close to $20 billion to help address that issue 
suggests no, and I, I would very much, you know, support that. I think that the pull is much stronger than it has been, but there are a lot of challenges about how to make sure we deploy that and how we, we remove the barriers to make sure that can be deployed. But but I certainly see that, you know, we have, it is building momentum um, and we are seeing, we're seeing now to, for a long period, big energy companies would pay to pilot technology and never deploy it. And you'd see startups thinking they were getting there, they were getting there and they'd never deploy it. We are seeing that shift, which I think is really positive. It needs to move a lot faster and we need to do a lot more. But I think, you know, just I just kind of talk about what I see as that kind of changing momentum. And, and you know, that's a number of factors around cost as much as anything else. Um, so, so I think there's, um, you know, I think answering your first question there, I think around climate disclosure, um, I mean, I, I still find it amazing how having worked in this sector for a while, how little corporate Australia really understands about it and a little bit depressing. Um, but, you know, I think that those laws and I think a lot of the kind of international disclosures are, are pushing a lot of behavioural change through. Um, you know, starting from so you know, starting from just baselining it, people not having information, um, and you know, so we are seeing that coming through really strongly through the financing system, which I think is is a really great way to try and push it through the broader economy, where you hold the money accountable for what it's financing, um, and then also through um, other supply chains as well. So I think it's. Again, I think a lot more needs to be done, but it is forcing real change. You know, again, we see the companies and we've been looking at these technologies and knowing that there's going to be a market for it for a long time. And now we're actually seeing real money being spent in deploying them. So we do see that kind of that that shift. Any closing comments, uh, both Paul and, and Kristen, you'd like to make before we finish up? Thank you very much for having me on as a guest. I've really enjoyed that. And I think it's given me a really kind of, you know, I, I get very, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's, you can, you can put your head down and get very focused on the particular area you're working on, which is only a very small part of it. Um, but if I were to leave, you can probably guess what my parting thoughts would be. I think it is a continuing to show those stories of where things are getting done. Because I think as frustrating as it is that pace is not nearly as fast as it could be as, an, as, it, as it should be, I think it's it's balancing, as Paul said before, I think it's balancing that kind of, you know, human human beings need to see that, need to have some hope and something to focus on. So I think we need to just keep, you know, bringing up those stories and highlighting those stories of where we are making good progress. Mm. And I would just say that, you need to take comfort from the change that's actually happened. Don't discount it or grab hold of it. But then we need to push for higher ambition from business, from government, because we're still not reducing the amount of pollution we're putting out into the atmosphere that we need. And towards the end of about August next year, the Australian government has to set, start working through a process of setting new emission reduction targets for Australia out to 2035. Now, anyone who cares about the future of our country and the world needs to make sure that there's an eight in front, at least an eight in front of that target that Australia set. So between now and August next year, let's get active in pushing the Australian government and every politician that we know or have seen on the TV to back in strong climate action and corporates as well. 
In that regard, Paul, if I can just add, when I was talking earlier on, I was talking about the default position of uh, of Australians, what appears to be the way that we think. Um, and there seems to be an assumption that it's really about government action, which is going to change um, the uh, putting pressure on the fossil fuel industry or putting pressure on the automobile industry. In fact, an awful lot of uh, of climate change action could be done simply by individuals. And that's where we need influencers. And that's where the social media is so bloody good. And we appear to be lacking. Uh, and uh, yeah, if, if we could, I don't know, just use our, what little influence each individual has to get people believing that they can do something to help rather than just protest. They can actually do things by reducing the emissions that they're put they are personally putting into the atmosphere yeah and that will set an example and hopefully start a wave yeah <laughs> it's like we can walk and chew gum right so we can yeah, we live can our life the best possible way for life and we need to push for those systemic changes you know we can do both we we can yeah well 10 years ago we started the sustainable hour as a way of um, influencing towards sustainable living. It's in that time, it's become very politicized now and we find ourselves protesters and fighters in the battle against fossil fuels. But in truth, if we go back to where we started, sustainable living, if we all live sustainably, then we probably wouldn't have such a crisis on our hands. I think the fossil fuel companies would like us to think that, but in reality, we really need to, yeah, to, to, Keep fighting. Keep fighting, yeah. And, yeah. yeah, join with other groups. Like there are groups that are joining together that never have before. They've, they've looked at how they're different in the past and said, oh, we can't work with you because we've got different values or whatever. But, yeah, they're realising we've said a number of times that we all share the atmosphere, no matter yeah. what colour we are, how old we are, what our, our faith is or no faith. Uh, we all share that, and that's something we can all protect together. So, yeah, maybe the flag has got a role in that. Mm. In any case, Kristen and Paul, thank you very much. And you are most invited to our 10-year anniversary celebration, which will happen on Saturday in Geelong at the Davidson Restaurant. We start at 6 o'clock, and it's sort of a relaxed get-together from you know star guests, uh, past presenters, and people who just like to listen to the Sustainable Hour. Um, everyone buys their own meal, but there'll be a welcome drink and there'll be a cake and different things. And there will be this exciting launch of this global flag, the Earth flag, the blue dot flag. And we'll also be launching a new series of podcasts. We've been running a climate revolution series. This was the sixth episode we put out this week. We're going to launch a new one that we call the business revolution. More about that next week. This was all we could fit in the hour, folks. Until then, be the difference. Be the difference. Be the difference. People say that Sweden is just a small country and it doesn't matter what we do. 
but I've learned that you are never too small to make a difference. And if a few children can get headlines all over the world just by not going to school, then imagine what we could all do together if we really wanted to. Watching